Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Rolling. Take one. Is it going to be all right? Hello and welcome to All Through a Lens. This is the podcast about film photography where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Vanya. And I'm Eric. Today we'll be talking to photographer and playwright Ed Pavez, who will also be telling about the many varied styles of Pacific Northwest photographer Verna Haffer. We'll push the button on the answer machine and have a little bit of fun along the way. But first, Vanya. Yes. How the hell have you been? Uh, fairly good. It's been a little crazy trying to find a place for myself and trying to find a place in El Segundo is really, really hard unless you have a unlimited budget. True. It's basically about one to two thousand dollars per bedroom. So I'm looking for a studio. <laughs> so so you do need to leave your wallet in El Segundo. I gotta get it, I got, got to get it. I do. Yes. It it's unfortunately it used to be a really great place, very blue collar, um affordable. Yeah. No one really wanted to live here because it smelled like shit because there's the the poop plant. You have, you have a place that just makes poop. That's that's wonderful. Yeah, and for some reason, it got really popular, and it's just weird. Uh, it's such a weird thing. We're, like, surrounded by pollution. There's the LAX airport on one side. There's the Chevron on the other. And then Depart- Department of Water and Power. So, it's very strange. It's, <laughs> it's it a very strange like a place. place to live. I mean, yeah, if... I'm assuming if I'm here long enough, I may eventually either grow a third eye or a third nipple. So fingers crossed. Which one is more useful? Find out. And Eric, how have you been? Well, I've been I've been okay. I've actually done something really fun. And I'll talk about that in a second. But I, I first want to start off with a little bit of housekeeping. Um, we had our dev party last week. And mm-hmm. we had three questions, and they were wonderful questions, and I had a lot of fun with that. And so we're going to keep doing it. So if you've got questions to ask us for Dev Part, it could be about developing film, could be about photography in general, or just life in general. We're here to answer all of your questions, whether it's advice or bad advice or no advice at all. We, we're here to answer. Also, I just got word at the time of recording that Kat Swansea our friend of the show, Kat Swansea, her book is in paperback. And we said we would let you all know when oh, it comes neat. in the paperback. And it is in paperback now. You can go to catswansea.com and order it directly from her. That was our first episode back. That that was. That was just, that was, it seems recent, but I'm not sure that it was. But yeah, it was. And so that is available from her. And and she's doing something that I think is is kind of cool. And I think more people should learn from this. She had a mishap with her laptop. It's gone. It kaput. She needs a new laptop. But instead of doing like a GoFundMe and just give me money for my laptop, she's doing the responsible thing and she's selling things that she makes. She's selling prints. She's selling her, you know, her, her, this book is why she put it in the paperback so soon. You know, she's 
giving back to the community rather than just taking from it. And that is wonderful. Absolutely. I would agree. Yes. Okay. So now what I've been doing is I had a friend from almost childhood, like when I was 18 years old, we started hanging out and he came and visited and we went to, uh, we did a bunch of, of, of like touristy Seattle things, which was, which was kind of fun. I always like doing those. I wouldn't do them by myself. But one of the touristy things you can do is the Museum of Pop Culture, which actually I would do by myself. But this time around, they had an exhibit called Contact High. And what that is, is an exhibit of uh, 170-ish contact sheets from the hip-hop era in the 80s and through, the, through kind of present day, but big, big focus on the 80s. And so nice. my love of 80s hip-hop brought me there, but also... A lot of people really like contact sheets. I know that. Oh my God, I love contact sheets. Magnum, they did a whole book of it. People are gaga over the Magnum thing. Fuck all of that. Here is where <laughs> contact sheets, if you want, you want to see contact sheets, go to this thing. And it's in Seattle for about a year. I think it leaves in January. So what a contact sheet is, if for people who, who may not know, is why don't you explain it, Vanya? You've, you've done them. I've never done one. Sure. So- Usually we use print files to load up our 35 millimeter negatives, right? Right. Well, what you do is basically put an 8 by 10 piece of paper underneath that and the contact sheet with all the negatives on top of it. Press it on a piece of glass and blast it with some light. Develop it and boom, there's your contact sheet. You can see all, hopefully, 36 pictures <laughs> that you uh, photograph. Yeah. It's kind of the best thing ever. I don't know why contact like contact sheets are so amazing, but they are. They're well, just amazing. If you've never done one, I would definitely do one. It's so rare that somebody shares an entire role with you. True. And so here's what you're seeing is their entire role. You're seeing in this case the famous photo and also mm -hmm. all the photos that they took in that same session on Which that same Which I love. Yeah. And I think that's why a lot of people like the Magnum book because we do only see that one photo that is so familiar. We've seen it a million times. But when you get to see all the other, it makes it more real. Yeah. And that's what this because was. Because you can see was, the mistakes, you know? This was a very approachable exhibit. Mm -hmm. um, so some of the contact sheets there were from Joe Conzo Jr., who shot DJ Cool Herc, Sophie Bramley, who shot Fab Five Freddy, Jeanette Beckman, who shot Run DMC and, and Salt and Peppa. There's an amazing, like, full wall of Salt and Peppa from, I think it's the uh, Shake Your Thang. So fun. Uh, Lawrence Weston did Roxanne Shantae and LL Cool J. Drew Carolyn did Eric B. and Rakim. Pump up the volume. Glenn Friedman, who I don't know, he's a great follow on Instagram. Yes. You should definitely follow him. Uh, he's shot a lot of people. He's the one who did the um, the minor threat on the on the stairs, on the stairs mm -hmm. of the minor of the uh, Discord house. Okay. He did uh, Public Enemy and the Beastie Boys, Ricky Powell. And there's this huge, huge display of Ricky Powell's slides. I don't know if he actually did contact sheets, but there's this color slides of, of, of a, like, just two big walls full of Ricky Powell's slides. So the show was mostly old school, golden age stuff, like Grandmaster Flash through Tribe Called Quest and De La Soul, but also covered, to me, <laughs> I guess not to everybody, but to me, newer stuff, like Missy Elliott, Tupac, and most stuff. I, I, I kind of... I did hip hop a lot in the 80s. That was kind of my thing. And 
I I, lo- I I fell off after like the third Public Enemy album. Well, welcome to the Teradome. After like De La Soul is dead, I, I sort of wandered away from hip hop, got into the whole punk rock thing. This was like a wonderful little walk down, not even memory lane because I wasn't really a part of the hip hop scene. So there are maybe like a hundred or so contact sheets. I think maybe, maybe more than that. Plus, since it's in a museum, they did have some artifacts. And one of the coolest things they had there was they had Grandmaster Flash's turntables. The ones that during the, the, during the blackout in, was it 79, he stole out of the hi-fi shop. And so he has, they have those, his original wheels. And that was so amazing. It was this kind of offset from the, from, from the uh, contact sheets. And so I was walking around and I saw a couple of turntables there. My first thought was, oh my God, that's Flash's turntables. And it fucking was. And I was just like, oh my God, this is the coolest thing. And I've seen like a lot of shit in museums, like a lot of really cool, like rare shit in museums. And I don't know if anything has like floored me as much as seeing Flash's turntables. But next to that was Shaw Rock's dress, like her gold sequin dress. And nobody knows who I'm talking about here probably, but she was in the Funky Four Plus One. She was the first female MC. The uh, Beastie Boys have actually sampled, uh, it's the joint. So going back to the contact sheet, since that's really why we're here, uh, most of them were 35 millimeter, which makes a lot of sense, but there were a lot of 120. And 120 contact sheets are really fun because you can really tell which camera they're using. A lot of Hasselblad. So you had the square with the two little notches. And that was so neat to see that. You have various Mamiya's. It's kind of hard to tell the difference between the RB67 and the RZ67, and then there were, but, but there were a little bit longer ones too. So that came from like, what would that be, the Mamiya Seven or something, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there were even a few four by fives, and there were a couple of Polaroids too, oh, like neat. the Polaroid four by fives. So, with this exhibit was also released a book. It's not quite a catalog because there there were some. There were some contact sheets there that aren't in the book. Uh, there was a real heavy lean towards golden age during the in, in the exhibit, and the book is is more spread out than that. So the book is by Vicky Tobek. I highly recommend it. Um, it it usually how it's usually laid out is a you know contact sheet on one side and then like the famous photo on the other. There's a lot more '90s and, and 2000s in this book too, which I'm. I don't, I'm looking at through it, I don't recognize half of these people. But they do have the contact sheet for Baron Claiborne's Biggie Smalls King of New York session. That's like the the, the really super saturated red one. Mm-hmm. RB67. Nice. What's That's cool so is that usually in each each of the, um, for each of the, the photographers, they tell you a little bit about the session, a little bit about mm-hmm. the artist, but also usually which camera they were using. And so I, love it, that. It, I do too. It really covers a lot of ground. We're not gear people, but it's really neat to see. It's, it's just a nice thing to see. The, the whole exhibit and the book are kind of like surrounding this one photo. And it's a photo called A Great Day in Hip Hop. And what that photo is, taken in 1998, uh, it's a recreation of Art Kane's 1958 photo, A Great Day in Harlem. And that's where Kane brought together 57 jazz legends and he stood them in a stoop of a brownstone in Harlem. So in 1998, XXL decided to do this for hip hop and they brought together 177 hip hop artists. 
Some were from like way back in the day, like Fab Five Freddy, Flash was there. You had Run DMC or at least Rev Run. You had Rakim. You even had Debbie Harry. Wow, neat. Which is really cool. But you also had like Wu-Tang and Brand Nubian. So it was taken in the exact location as the Harlem I was photo. Gonna, yeah, I was going to ask you if it was the same one. It took up a lot more space. So they, they use like, they look at, they use the brownstones around that too. But so Art Kane died a few years where this photo was taken. And right after he died, a photographer named Gordon Parks went back to that same spot and shot the photo with just the locals who were there. Mm-hmm. And so that's what they did for the magazine. They hired Gordon Parks to shoot a great day in hip hop. And in the book, it's a full spread, like double page. In the the exhibit, it's a huge wall. And they also have like, you know, a little silhouette cut out of it so that you can, and have like the numbers and who you can, you can match up the names to the faces and all of that. Mm. Um, You have his contact sheet as well. He took four, maybe five pictures. I think he was using an X-Pan, I think. Because it is a panoramic photo and it just, it's 35 millimeter. That's X-Pan, right? X-Pan's 35? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So the show and the book definitely have different selections of photos. So my recommendation is to do both. If you come to Seattle and you want to see it and you want someone to go with you to see it, I would absolutely see it again because <laughs> it's such a good exhibit. And the whole museum is wonderful. It's a, it's a museum of pop culture. What's not to love? That's the whole point of it. There's something there for everybody. So that's what I did. I spent an hour there with Ryan, my friend Ryan, and his 15-year-old kid and his wife, and we just had a wonderful time. It was such a good time. That's awesome. So, yes. I really love that even though it was like 99, 2000, they were still using the RB67. They were still using the X-Pan. They're still using film cameras. Oh, yeah. And really when I think about the lapse in time, like when digital came out and how that kind of popped up, but still how film has still survived somehow, it's kind of incredible because it's only been really 20 years. Well, I mean, the latest, I'm looking this up now, the last entry in this book is from 2012 and it's Gucci Mane and um, ASAP Rocky. These are people Mm -hmm. I do not know. This is really fun. I do not know these people. Um, but, you know, the first session was with DJ Cool Herc, and I, I absolutely know DJ Cool Herc. So now you know where I stand. When you get to the later entries in it, too, the photographers explain, like, well, I was going to shoot this on digital, but here's why I shot it on film. Mm-hmm. And whereas before, you know, in the 80s, there wasn't a question of not shooting it on film. You just did that because there was no other option. So correct. it's the history of hip hop. It, it really does get overlooked especially in photography. Do yourself a favor, and even if you're not super into hip-hop, pick it up. You know, there's something there for you. Each episode, we put on our house slippers and cozy cardigans to check our answering machine, because why not? It's still cold out there. We ask listeners to call in and leave us a message answering whatever weird-ass question we come up with. What is the weird-ass question for this this time around, Vanya? What do you think could change or alter your style of photography? I thought this was going to be an easier question than it was. It looks like 
Well, the last time we did the question, last last episode, we had a lot of response. Thousands of people called in. Now we thousands. have we, thousands, literally Ooh. thousands. Did you turn the tape over? Because I know we did run out of tape. We ran out of tape. Yeah, we ran out of tape. Here, we we barely used any tape, but you know, the four that we got are really good. So, uh, Vanya, let's just uh, press play. Okay. Hi, you reached 262-6387. We're not home right now, but um, if you want to leave a message, you could right after the beat. Thank you. <laughs> Hello, hello. This is Jason Beaner, just Jason Beaner on Instagram. Uh, one of my problems in photography actually is just about anything can change my style. I uh, love playing with old cameras and old film, things that I find cheap at estate sales and stuff like that. And it's really easy for me to find something funky and then just go down a rabbit hole with that for a while. So definitely one of the things I've been working on is trying to find a actual distinct style and and stick with a combination of things that i like for a little while but as it sits it's just too much fun to play with stuff so give me that rabbit hole and i will go down it thanks for the show you guys keep up all the good work and i will talk to you later oh yeah that's me all the way rabbit holes basically my life is all just me going down another rabbit hole until i get bored and find another one do you think that stops you from finding a style? No, I think I have a style that I'm comfortable with. Mm -hmm. I think I'm just constantly trying to do new things. Also, new processes, new ways of creating like analog art. So I just get excited. Yeah. Um, and and I, I have impulse control, so I just go for it. Yeah, I don't think finding your style and experimenting on, with other things are opposed to each other. I think you can do both. I think so too. Yeah. Also, I think Jason has a style. I, I think that maybe it's it's like when you think that you, I don't know what I was trying to say. That's okay. I, th I agree. I think he thinks he doesn't have a style and I think he is wrong <laughs> because when I see one of his photos pop up before even looking at the name, I go, oh yeah, that's Jason's. Yeah, absolutely. That's. I think it's recognizable yeah, it that is. it's his. And maybe it's because he only shares photos of a certain style, and that, that could certainly be it. But that's also part of your style, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's what mm -hmm. you choose to share more so than what you choose to, to shoot, I guess. That might not be true, but I think it's true enough to go to the next one. Hey, Eric and Vanya, this is Jess. Of course, there's no way of knowing exactly how my photographic journey throughout life will play out, but I think that right now, the one thing that would have an impact on my photography and style would be to travel more. I have seen a progression in my work already. When I lived in Montreal, I spent a lot of time photographing people. Since moving to the farm, I now focus on woodlands and farmscapes. So as I open my eyes to new sights and experiences, my photography evolves, and I think that traveling would help further that progression. The best part would be coming home with the trip in mind and looking at my favorite subjects through changed eyes, keeping myself motivated until I can hit the road again. I think it's so easy to get into a rut if you never leave where you are. Yeah, I could see that. But I could also see that you are f like our first episode where you're supposed to live somewhere for an entire year before you take a picture. <laughs> you could also say that she's familiar. She knows yeah. what times of the day is right. Oh, of and course. Absolutely. 
the seasons and how to shoot in snow because I don't fucking know how to do that. Yeah, that's impossible. But I think she is in a certain point in her life where she is doing the farm thing and she's doing that. But I don't think that's the end for her. I think there's going to be so much more after this stage in her life, which is really exciting. Oh, for sure. And that would, would certainly change her style as well. But I think, well, if you find yourself in a rut and you also find that you never leave your area, your city, your town or whatever, those two things might be connected. Not always, not necessarily, but they might be. And so getting out and, and finding new places to photograph, like completely new places, is such a good idea. It may not necessarily change your style, but it might get you out of your rut. And, you know, that's not a bad thing. Hi, guys. Michael here. So I think I want to go with boredom on this one because this is the factor that makes me want to switch cameras after I've exhausted the creative choices a specific model gives me and shoot more landscapes after I've shot too many portraits lately for example. So in other words, it determines both the tool I'm using and the subject matter I'm interested in. As for the style itself, I think it works as a filter of some sort that filters out all the uninteresting photographs to me and makes me want to pursue the ones that really catch my eye, I think. I hope so. Cheers, guys. So what do you have to say about boredom? Uh, I have a lot to... Actually, I have nothing to say because it's boring. <laughs> I get into trouble when I'm bored, so I try not to be bored. Michael, are you a boring person? <laughs> or do you just need boredom to to change to change a style to to do something different and, that, and that's I, that's interesting i i don't think i've ever thought of that I'm, I'm that from boredom can come creativity i fear boredom i would say that it's isolation for me that turns me from boredom into creative okay i think when i'm isolated and forced to think <laughs> on things to keep myself busy is when i'm the most creative Okay. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, starting with a clean slate or a boring slate, but a clean slate, you can allow yourself to change your style because you've got nothing to base it on. And that's kind of interesting. I, I don't know if I could do that, but I'm glad some people can. That's kind of cool. It really took me out. When I, when I heard that, I was like, oh, holy shit, that's different. The last one. Hey, this is Dan Tree. Um, Dan Tree Photo is my Instagram. Um, I think probably the biggest thing that can make me change my style is when I make a mistake and maybe learn something new from that mistake. Um, that's kind of happened over the years with different uh, processes that I'm learning that something might turn out, but then I might later revisit it and it's perfect for something down the line. Um, and that's about it. Thanks. I think I commented something about that on the last episode, how it's really hard for me to shoot digital because I don't want to delete anything because I might actually really like yeah, something that is a mistake later. Um, so, yeah, I completely agree. I think it is kind of just makes you a little bit more just open with your with your work, um, makes you think a little bit more. And then also it could just spark this like 
crazy idea that you didn't even think was a thing until you saw the photo and you're like, oh my gosh, now I want to do this whole series on this, this and that and whatever. So yeah, it's, it could be really fun. Yeah. I, I love the idea. And I do, I used to share my mistakes a lot more. Um, now I'm, I'm, I'm still, I guess I'm a little cranky when I fuck up and it's usually, well, when you fuck up with like a four by five, it's usually catastrophic, right? It's not usually like, oh, it's a little underexposed or something because you're really paying attention. At least I am, you know, you're really paying attention. You nail all this stuff. So when a mistake is made, it's just like, well, now you, now there's no photo, you know? We're done with the, we're done with the answer machine, with, with the answer machine. Um, thanks everybody for, for messaging and, and calling in. We really appreciate that. However, when we did ask the question, we had one person and we usually have one person or two people reply in the comments to what their questions are or to what their, uh, to what their answers are. And this time around, I don't remember who it was, their one word answer to what do you think could change or alter your style of photography was chemicals. That's it. Just the word chemicals. So yeah. I have several theories as to what this could mean. First, okay. drugs. Yes. Okay. Drugs is perfect. That That is possible. But you would have to maintain a steady supply of those drugs to maintain that style. Second would be maybe they shoot Polaroid. And so to change their style, they'd have to shoot film. And for that, you would need chemicals. Okay. I guess there could be, maybe, they, maybe they're only doing monobath. And they are thinking like, oh, I need more chemicals because I've just got one and that somehow works. It's magic. I want to try other, other developers. So I need more chemicals. Hmm. So interesting. It's, it's one of those. Or they misunderstood the question completely and just wrote the first word that came to their head. And for some reason, that word was, was chemicals. Yeah. Everybody, thank you for calling or I guess writing in, I suppose. We do appreciate it. Okay, so Vanya, what's yes. your answer to this? I wouldn't necessarily say I have like a complete answer. Things change constantly. Mm -hmm. I would say time would be the thing that could alter the most. Time is always moving forward and your body is changing and I'm getting older and wrinkly, wrinkly and my eyes are starting to blur out even more. So there's, I think with time... I will probably like get into specific things a little bit more and then kind of stop others. Like maybe swimming in the ocean is not going to be something that I'm going to be doing when I'm 80 years old and I might have to find something else to do. So I would say that with age and time and ex just life experience, um, I will get into specific things and I will uh, be done with others. So just natural... Natural evolution. Yeah. Cool. I think that's probably true for, for a lot of people. That that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. I think for me, it's influences. And I'm kind of surprised nobody brought this up because I think we influence each other a lot more than we know. And I know that I'm, I'm very susceptible to influence and I try to tailor what I look at so that I'm not like looking at a lot of other landscapes or a lot of other, I don't know, broken down houses or something. So I try to look at a lot of portraits or a lot of like the the contact sheet book, the, the, the uh, contact tie. I, I like things like that because I'll never shoot anything like that. I'm never going to be a portrait artist and I'm fine with that. So I like looking at things that can maybe influence me and 
perhaps change my style, but that aren't where I am now. Because I'd feel that that would that would maybe stagnate me a little bit, or it'd be kind of like spinning my tires. Because I am very happy with what I'm doing now, but I am also happy growing, and I like growing. And I think if my style does change, I, I think it would probably be like you said, over time, but I think it would be a very gradual change. So if you look at my work 10 years from now, it'll probably look a lot different than it does now. I hope it does. I hope I'm not taking yeah. the same fucking shots as I was taking, you know, this year. Yeah, no, I don't think so. No. I don't think you can't, I don't think you could. Every year you seem to change a little, very, very ever so slightly. I mean, I could tell the difference. Maybe some people couldn't, but I think incorporating even just like what you said, you're like, I can never take a portrait, but I think that you can find inspiration in how people are taking portraits mm -hmm. and use that in your landscapes. I think so. Whether it's the feeling or the tones and colors, whatever, you know, it could be anything. So I wouldn't necessarily say that it's just a complete turn around, okay, I'm doing this now. <laughs> yeah, I don't see that happening. It would be no. weird if it did. It would. Like if I suddenly sold my my 4x5 stuff and picked up a Leica and was just like street photographer now. <laughs> it would that be would be very scary. And yeah, I would be I would be worried about you a little bit. Yeah, it would be a really weird thing. If, if that happens, definitely check to see if I'm okay. I kind of want to see how it goes for a little bit, just to see <laughs> what happens, you know? I no, obviously, there's, there's nothing wrong with, with doing that, but making that switch out of nowhere, that's a red flag. Possible. <laughs> as red as that beanie that you're wearing. Oh, thank you. Vanya, what is the next question we will be asking the kind folks to leave us a message about? If you could start your own indie photography book publishing house, tell us about it. Yeah, what would you do? Who would you publish? Who would you not publish? What kind of stuff would you want to do? Where would you sell it? How big would you want it to be? Dream and tell us about that dream. Dream a little dream. So call our instant machine and leave us a message. And of course, by call us up, we mean go to Instagram and leave us a voice message. And if we like you very, very, very much, or if only four other people do this, we'll play it on the next episode. And the deadline for this is Tuesday, March 21st. Today we have Ed Pavez, film photographer, YouTuber, playwright, theater director, Chilean-born, living in Brooklyn. So excited. Let's give him a call. Hello. Hello. Oh my gosh. How do you say your uh, last name? Uh, Pavez. Pavez and then... Goye. Goye. Mm -hmm. okay. My name is kind of a mouthful for those who don't speak Spanish native. I have a friend who's called Rodrigo Recabarren, so I yeah, want to see you try that. <laughs> <laughs> that's absolutely insane. Yeah, my my mom is from Chile, actually. She was, oh, nice. And my brothers were born there. I'm actually first generation, so I'm American, but it's uh, all my family is still down there. So They're brave people. It's a terrible place to be right now. They're brave people. Yeah, I know. I definitely want to get into like a little bit of that too with like your zine and stuff. I have some questions about that. So sure, I'm sure. excited. So let's just start with, just give us a rundown on your history and relationship with film. Sure. So um, history time. I It was uh, 2009 
the first time I was properly start shooting film, my sister gave me her camera. It was a Minolta X700. Uh, pretty cool camera, actually. So it was a great starter. Oh, yeah. Um, and she said, like, I, I don't think they make film anymore. Like, nobody uses this. I had this in my closet for years. Just take it. Do whatever you want with it. And I grabbed this camera. I was like, oh, this seems like an interesting hobby that I could pick up. I wonder how difficult it is. So I bought a black and white film. I took some random shots around the city. And the development was so expensive. And I got it printed. And I thought, this is nice. But, like, I'm just starting to learn how to use the camera. I was shooting with my digital camera at the time with a Canon EOS rebel xt so the 350d i was just starting i didn't really know what i was doing i was figuring out what the hell is an f-stop so from that position um i started shooting the film and then i said okay if i want to do this i need to get into like developing and scanning and all those things which is expensive when you start because you don't know where to start and at that time Flickr was the only source of information so i had to go through all the forums ask everybody it's a lot of work to make it happen and for some reason i just felt like oh, i want to do this like i want to give it a try yeah um kind of at the same time the students uprising began in Chile in 2010. And at that time, I was already like developing my own film. I was already like scanning my Epson flatbed, you know, the classical thing. And so I decided to start shooting film while going to the protest because I brought my digital camera to the protest and it was a stupid move. I was shooting weddings at the time. Um, and by that moment, I was already like, I had a very nice L lenses and a Canon 5D Mark II. So I bump up the quality quite quickly. Like I got into wedding gigs and I was like, okay, I got to invest all my money into like lenses and body cameras and whatnot, uh, duplicates. So I brought my cameras to the protest and like it was the protest when they tip over a car and set it on fire and I almost passed out and it was very dramatic. And I was like, okay, I can't bring digital cameras anymore. I'm going to bring only film cameras. So I started shooting more film naturally. And from there, it, the ball just kept rolling until I decided, you know, well, I could share this maybe with some other people that are at the stage that I was when I started, mm -hmm. uh, where there were no resources. So if I could just help my past self to make this journey a little bit less daunting, then my, my job is done. So that's how it started. So why, why shoot protests? Well, many reasons. Mm -hmm. One of them was I was, well, I said I was shooting weddings at the time. So weddings are a very organized ritual. Um, and it's very standardized. So you get there, you take some shots of the, like this repertoire kind of wedding photography. You go there, you meet the bride, it's getting ready, the pictures, the nice makeup, the father who's so emotional and they hug. It's ah, emotional moment, click, click, click. And you put like a, like a crystal or something in the front. So there's like lights in it and it's like very beautiful. And like all those dirt, like you put a plant right next to the camera. So you had some depth and some autofocus, like greenery in front of it, all those little tricks. But then the, the first time I, I did it, I was um, so nervous about it because it's the memories of somebody and you, they put so much trust in you. I never shot a wedding and they were like, okay, we're in a tight budget, but we really like your flicker. That's how we started. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you could please like take the pictures of my wedding, I was like, okay, it's my first time. Like I can make no promises. It was so nerve wracking. I was so nervous. Like I can't, I can't gamble with these people's memories, so I need mm -hmm. to do a good job. Um, and I was obsessed with flash photography at the time and strobist photography. So I will put flashes around the, the party and then command them remotely and trying to calculate the. I was, I've always been a little bit obsessed about making things hard for myself. Yeah. Um, and when <laughs> things get too easy, I get bored. 
Um, because usually the skill cap for things is really short. Like if you really put your mind into it, you can be competent in a relatively short amount of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's like that in almost everything. Mm-hmm. So I got to a cap of photography, like the, the, the good enough cap really quickly. And then I start getting like stagnated. So at the time when I was shooting the weddings, the, the emotion was a little bit gone. Like the, the, the dancing moment. Oh, the bride and the groom. And like, sure, click, click, click. Like I'm not nervous anymore. I know more or less how it works. Yeah. But then I went to my first protest and it was a similar feeling to the wedding. There was a ritual. Like you go there, people meet, they chant, the police comes, there's some rocks going back and forth. And then the police strikes and you can get beaten. You got to run or you got to stay calm. You got to decide the character you're going to play. It's a lot of performance. Like if you run completely scared, the police are going to beat you. If you stay there, like you're just from the journalist, you just let them pass they don't care about you so you gotta you gotta dress accordingly just like a wedding you can go with a very you know colorful clothes you gotta go dress all in black hopefully a hoodie pay no no big attention to things happening it's a it's a something about the ritual of it got my attention and it was mixed with danger it, it kind of quenched my thirst for war photography i always thought that i would be a good war photographer and i but that i'm just I don't have the connections, the time or the money to make it happen. So I was like, this is the closest I can get to that. And there is a political like decision to cover this because it's an important moment in the history of my country. So I want to you know, make sure that this goes to posterity. So that's why protests uh, to fulfill the necessity of like getting a bigger challenge because of the risk and because it's like a, it's politically important to make those kinds of records. So you've published a bunch of zines, one of them from photos from from. One of the protests, was that the one? And uh, yeah, that was the third scene I published. It took me a long time because I, I had enough material to publish like a proper book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I actually looked for how expensive it is to yeah. buy a proper book and make it like happen. I was like looking at my photography books and I was like, oh man, I could like make this like a nice hardcover with some thick pages and whatnot. And it was so expensive that I thought, yeah, no, I'm going to make another scene. Like, it's <laughs> why would I subject myself to this like, amount of money and time to make it happen? It's going to be like the postage is going to be impossible to pay. Mm-hmm. So it, it got turned into a scene. So it's a collection of all the protests that I shot between 2011 and 2013, right mm-hmm. before I left Chile. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to hundreds of those. And, and it's a little snippet of like my favorite, my, my, my top moments of violence. <laughs> it could be like a subtitle of it. Um, so yeah, it's it, it was a nice experience and, and it's a little bit condensed in this format, which is tricky because you have to, there's a lot of violence in protest. Yeah. Like it, it, that's how it works. And I am I'm very on the radical left. So violence is not something that I shy away from. I'm okay with violence as long as it's in the context of you know, trying to go against state violence. I, get, I think it's a legitimate el- element of self-defense. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, when you uh, when you see these pictures without the context, and you just and you come from a more conservative understanding of how things are, it might strike you as, oh, this stupid, violent kids are just you know being mean to the police. But once <laughs> you're there and you see how the police really works down there. You don't have any any compassion for these people. So it was a hard time to navigate the fact that there is, of course, violence, but it's not a glorification of violence. And it's mm-hmm. also not a I'm not also critiquing violence for violence 
as a, as a as a resource. Uh, mm-hmm. It's more like this is part of the conversation. This is what happens. Like like it or not, violence happens and emerges, and it takes different forms. And these are different forms in which violence manifests. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 in general like a landscape photography, mm-hmm. but with people, I would say. Yeah. Do you think there's a huge gap? At least for me, this is how I feel. There's like this huge gap in my family where a lot of my family is very old and then very young. So there's this separation between the two. So my mom's experience in Chile in the you know early 70s or that whole era is different than it is now. It, it feels like there's like this gap where it's just completely different. Like the old school and then the young, new, progressive, you know, kids that are growing up. Do you, Does it feel like that in the city? Yeah, it feels like that. But there's like layers to that conversation that, that are like that cut in between. So the experience that somebody had in Chile during the 70s, 80s, I would say most mostly 70s and 80s, um, it's highly dependent on the social context you were. If you were in the outskirts of Santiago, the repression was brutal. You probably got tortured. You know people who got killed. Probably your uncle was made in a, you know, disappear, made disappear or like chopped in parts and thrown to the ocean. That's just how things were. But if you were in a more like comfortable position or had like a, I don't know, if you were more to the center of the city or in areas like Las Condes, Providencia, Ñuñoa, Vitacura, you know, nice areas of Santiago, then probably you, your experience of dictatorship was pretty mild. Like mm-hmm. nobody died, nothing happened. I heard of nothing ever like being, you know, detained or anything. We're good people. All my family behaves well. We respect authority. Nothing happened. If something happened, it's probably because you were looking for trouble. Mm-hmm. That's like the that's the idea, mm-hmm. which is not very different from now. If you go to a protest right now, like oh, these kids are just rioting because they just they like violence. Like it's it's it always strikes me as that kind of critique comes from the understanding of another, like a 2D object. Mm-hmm. Like you suddenly become violent. Like, <laughs> and in reality, we're very complex creatures. Like if you decide to go out and risk your life for a political position, it's not something that you just woke up, have cereal and decide to do it. Like it's, no, it's, it's fueled by a complicated yeah. set of network of ideas and assumptions. So yes, there is uh, a generational thing that's also an income and social thing. But in the generational side, which is the more similar to across the board in other countries, it's like the same problem we're having with boomers right now. Like mm-hmm. they bought all the property, they destroyed the ecosystem, they polluted with plastics. And now we can buy a house, we're poisoning ourselves, probably the ecosystem's fucked and there's nothing to do. And yeah. they don't care because they're like, they just treated this world like a rental car. <laughs> They exactly. They don't care what's going to happen. Like, we're yeah. going to have to fix it. And we can't fix it because the sons of those people who are in power just want to keep the power. So we're just going along for the ride, hoping yep. that the collapse of capitalism will be a good retirement system. And that's <laughs> the only way we're probably going to get old. So the generational gap is certainly also present there, but it's present everywhere. Yeah. Okay, so I have been watching your YouTube channel for quite some time. I think it's been just like a great resource. Hearing other people talk about film and shooting like different emulsions and things, it's great. You have great content, 
I, I really like the the books I read series and things like that. So it's it's fun. How long have you been running the channel for? <laughs> Since 2015, when I was living in Berlin, I was about to move to London. So my mm-hmm. my at that time we're still best friends, but at that time my partner Fran. Uh, we were living together in Berlin and she got a job in London and we met some YouTubers there. And and one of them, I, I didn't have a YouTube channel, Fran had one. So I, I, I chose a camera for her. I was editing her videos. I was helping her. Uh, and this friend of hers came to visit us to Berlin and she said, oh, you know, you, if you want to move to London, can I give you a, like a, a, a piece of advice? And I was like, man, any advice is great. And she said, open a YouTube channel. Well, why would I do that? Like, I have nothing to talk about. I said, oh, you have cameras. You can talk about your cameras. I was like, oh, yeah, I could do that. Why should I do that? Why should I open a YouTube channel? She said, well, because in London, it's the only way to meet people. Because if you're not going to go to an office and you're not going to study, then how the hell are you going to meet people? Are you going to make friends at a bar? I was like, oh, that's that's a pretty sound advice. Okay, so let's see if I can meet somebody. So that's the first episode of the channel is me reviewing my Leica M8 that I had in my room. I was working. I was like, I'm going to do this. I put a tripod and I just, hey, hey, let me talk you about my camera. Beep, 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 beep. <laughs> and, and that was it. I just uploaded. Fran had a little bit of a following at that time. So she gave me some, you know, hey, check out Ed's video, blah, blah, blah. So suddenly I had like a few, like a very niche core of people who were like, oh, yeah, this is great. Keep going. I was like, okay, I'm going to make a video about development. Okay, I'm going to go out and take some pictures. Okay, I'm going to try another camera. I'm going to try another film. And then suddenly it became like a ball that kept rolling. Mm-hmm. And 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 this person was completely right. Like when I moved to London, basically all the friends that I made were through the channel. Mm-hmm. I, every, every other week, somebody will write me like, hey, you know, really like a channel. You want to go for a beer? It's like, of course I do. <laughs> that's the only reason why I made this Yeah, thing. no, that's great. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's how I met really cool people, um, and 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 it worked. It, it served the purpose, and it was a nice project. That it's still ongoing, a little bit dormant right now because of my my studies, but it's still there. What are you studying? I'm studying a PhD in theater and performance, which is it sounds like I'm acting, but I'm not. <laughs> it's a it's a theoretical PhD in performance. What it means is that I study uh, human behaviors that can get can be repeated. Okay. Or that are repeated. So that entails from protests to theater and okay. everything in between trials, okay. um, self talk, rituals, everything that can be repeated. I study the institutional framework that allows those things to be repeated. So you started with wedding photography with the ritual and then moved to protest photography with the ritual. And now you're essentially studying repeatable rituals. What drew you yeah. to, to ritual to begin with? I think, you know, the other day I was talking with my sister and and uh, and she had a very nice memory that I want to share uh, with you because I think it explains this very nicely. It, I, she told me about this. Uh, I went to visit uh, my family in uh, uh, Christmas time. Mm-hmm. So during, during the night of Christmas, everybody went to bed. And we we're talking about like, why do I like theater? Why why does she like to, because she's a social worker. Like she works in art and, and social impact and communities. And she told me, you know, when I was a little kid, there was one evening in which we were playing in the uh, in the patio because we live in a, in a, in a Russian built uh, 
complex of buildings. Mm-hmm. It was like a very communist aesthetic. Uh, so all the kids play the playground and all the buildings are looking at the kids <laughs> to form character. So they, as kids, we will form character playing on the mud. And my sister was forming character on the mud. And, and she told me, you know, I put some mud on my on my arm. And if I just press it really hard, I could see like sparkling, like little bits of sparkling, like it was made of gold. Mm. So I told my friends, you know what? We should make gold. So all my friends started doing this and we would collect like little dusts of gold. And we did that all day. And then night came, we couldn't look at the gold anymore. So we went to, we went home and she said, and I knew that we will never play that game again. And I never played that game again with my friends. It was fun for one day, but none of us decided to play it again. And that reminded me that the same thing happened to me. Whenever I, I was never good at sports. I never played football, soccer, or anything. Like I, I boxed for a little bit, but um, but I'm not a team sport person. Same. But but I but I enjoyed the idea of getting with friends and do one activity. Like one day we decided to make a hole and go to China. Of course, like we just dig like a meter and we thought, oh my God, we're going to get to China. It's so cool. <laughs> but just the fact of being with a lot of friends doing one activity that we know it's A, useless, and B, will never happen again. Those two things combined just make my heart tingle so much. But I think something looking for the idea of going to some kind of event that involves other people. And we feel this community feeling that it's fueled by the idea of us together doing one activity and the, the the fact that that activity will never be the same even if we repeat it that's it that's it for me theater rituals ayahuasca brew drinking everything that has to do with like a ritual setting and an experience i'm into that hmm. And I like symbols. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's the other thing. I love I love metaphors and symbols. That's basically my thing. I have like two topics: <laughs> politics <laughs> and metaphors. <laughs> you seem to be busy and produce quite quite a lot. Do you have creative slumps like everybody else? And if so, how do you manage them? Oh, I have I have creative slumps all the time. Um, I what I, I'm fortunate enough to do a lot of things. Uh, I'm going to rephrase that. I am silly enough to do a lot of things <laughs> uh, and, 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 and persistent enough to try to make a living out of those things that I like. So if I get fixated on photography, I try to make a living of photography. If I got into playwriting, I'm going to make a living out of make, being a playwright. If I got into whatever I get myself into, I'm like, I'm going to make a living out of this. I wrote TV for seven years. I, I, I've been writing theater for 20 something. Like it's, I do things. Um, but what I do is sometimes I get stuck in in a project, in an idea, in something. And then I just usually, A, if, if it's not urgent, I just leave it to rest and I go to something else. And then I revisit. And when I revisit, usually what happens is I can figure out why I was getting stuck. And it usually has to do with me, like some inner process, some insecurity that's not resolved, some... It's usually have to do with the ego and some insecurity. That's how it usually goes. Like if mm-hmm. I, for example, I can't finish a play. Like, why can I finish it? I would really like to do this, blah, blah, blah. And then I realized I'm trying to sound smarter than I am. I'm not really too bright. And I'm trying to be perceived as, oh my God, look at this guy. He has it figured out. So when, when this honesty comes in, it poisons the project. So usually if I take a few steps back, then dishonesty solves because of sheer time. And then I can revisit. Um, the other thing is, if the project is 
urgent and I need to finish because all of this is assuming I don't have to do it. But if I have to do it, mm-hmm. uh, I just I just go through it. I work through it and I hate every second of it. But by the end of it, it usually feels well. It feels mm-hmm. good because you you push yourself through it and not to glorify the grind because that's just basically self-exploitation. But just to say, like, if you if you want to finish a project and you want to there's a sense of accomplishment that comes from finishing something that you don't want to. And usually it has never happened to me that I finish a project and I look back and say, that was terrible. Like yeah. if I really put in the work, I usually like it. Right? Yeah. I found solutions. Like I, I, there's no way I can solve this. This is impossible. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, oh, that was a good solution. I would have never reached that solution on my own. Like if not for a pure pressure, like an atmospheric pressure. Yeah. Making it happen. Yeah, sometimes it's it's good to push yourself through things. I could see that. I like yeah, that. yeah. I don't know if you feel the same way. Like sometimes you're trying to sort something out, and 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 just by pushing it, it gets resolved somehow, kind of magically. But in reality, it's just you trying to survive. Mm-hmm. So you travel a lot. You know, it's Chile, Berlin, London. Now you're in New York. Yeah. Um, you travel also. Just for for photography, or is it just living situations? I travel for writing projects. Okay. Most of the time, it's writing. I go to Mexico because I I, I I write plays and direct plays, and I have a good relationship with a theater over there. And every other year, they call me like, "Oh, do you want to stage something?" So I write a play and then I go and direct it. Or I go to Seville every year to give a workshop with Fran, and I, I teach uh, she draws. And I write, so we teach graphic novels. We've written two graphic novels together. So when I'm in Seville, I go around and go to Berlin and go to UK because it's basically taking a train, so it's pretty comfortable. Do you bring a film camera with you when you do those types of trips? Yeah, yeah, I always bring a camera. The the, the hardest decision is which camera to bring. That's always the problem. (laughs) That's always the problem. And all my friends are like, which one are you taking this time? Like, well, I'm thinking about blue, blue, blue. Yeah. I, I... almost always bring my Lycan 3 because you just put a light meter on top of it and, 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 and you're basically set. Yeah, this last time I brought a Mamiya 6 foldable and I love that camera, but I didn't know it had a light leak. So all my oh. pictures, the six rolls shot in E6, uh, they all have half of them exposed. So it's, it's, it's sad, but I mean... <laughs> That's what you get for film photography experimentation, I guess. Right. <laughs> so it's part of it. It it looks terrible, but some big pictures look pretty cool. So can't complain. Like it's and besides, they're not pictures that I'm gonna be like awarded in some kind of WordPress photo. It's just for me. So yeah. I always bring the Rolleiflex. Those are the two cameras that I travel with because I love more than anything shooting in medium format. I found myself a little bit stuck in 35 millimeter. There are too many shots per roll, and I get nervous. Like I'm picture number 12 and I'm like I'm not gonna finish this role before leaving this country and then I get home and I still have like eight shots left and I'm like this is such an expensive film I don't want to shoot yeah. like roles, so what do I do yeah. and it just stays in the camera for months so I try to go for six by six to avoid those kinds of issues all right so I have I have one bonus question for you and this is probably for the only other Chilean that I know listens how do you feel about raisins and empanadas <laughs> Okay, so that's uh, that's a hard one because I always assumed so empanadas, traditional empanadas in Chile have a raisin or a few raisins in, mm-hmm. uh, but they also traditionally have olives, mm-hmm. one olive, and have like a slice of egg. Yes, mine don't have a slice of egg, but they don't have a lot of things. But I always assumed when I was a little kid, when I was when I was see like adults eating, that adults drink wine, 
adults eat um, olives and adults like raisins. Those are the three things that adults do. Through the years, I discovered that yes, adults do drink wine. Uh, it's an acquired taste. Adults do like raisins because now I, I make some oatmeal with raisins or some couscous with raisins. Mm -hmm. But, you know, olives are not for adults necessarily. Like you, It's fine not to like olives. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I have more issues with the olive than with the raisins. Of this oh, thing. interesting. <laughs> How funny. See, I'm fine with the olive. Like I'll endure it. But for some reason, it's I, I have a problem with raisins and maybe because my mom puts raisins in everything and so I'm just like oh no more raisins yeah <laughs> oh my gosh thank you so much for coming on I was really really excited to have you on tell everybody where they can find you basically all my my socials are at El Paves which is my, my the short version of my name uh, you can you can find me there yeah that's basically it. it's it's my YouTube my Twitter it's my Instagram it's uh, if, if, if you see Annette Pavez around there, it's probably me creeping behind the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for talking with us and uh, look forward to seeing what you do next or where you awesome. live next. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I hope I stay here. I like it here. Let's let's see how much how much it lasts. Let's see nothing's working this life. Awesome. All right. All right. Awesome. Thank you so thank much. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. It was. A lot of fun. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. Unless you are from the Puget Sound area in the first half of the 1900s, you probably haven't heard of Verna Haffer. She was a Tacoma, Washington area photographer whose variety in both style and medium should be celebrated far more than it is today. Verna Haffer was born Verna Mae Hansen in April of 1899. At the age of eight, her family moved to the small anarchist community of Home, Washington, just off southern Puget Sound. By the time the family moved to the home colony, it was seen by locals as a den of vicious feminists, firebrands, and nudists. Mobs had attempted to burn down the entire town a few years earlier. Life inside the colony when Verna moved there, however, was pretty typical of a small northwest town. Families raised their kids, sent them to school, and every once in a while, an itinerant photographer would wander through town, taking photos of anyone willing to lay down their dime. Verna got her picture taken and was smitten with the camera. It was 1909, and this 10-year-old wanted nothing more than to be a photographer. She suffered through the next few years of schooling before convincing her parents to let her go to high school in Tacoma. She attended Stadium High for a year or so before quitting, leaving home for good, and taking up an apprenticeship as a handy girl with Henrietta Irig, a local professional photographer who primarily worked with children. Irig's studio was set up in the former Tacoma Police Photography Studio, where they used to take mugshots. Now 15, Verna wasn't too far removed from the subjects she was shooting. Though naturalistic baby portraits weren't exactly her thing, the studio where she worked had access to publications like Camera Craft and Photo Era, which both had articles on everything photography and camera related. Verna later claimed that Irig taught her nothing 
at all about photography. She learned how to assist and taught herself everything else from books. She also spent time with Georgine Bagger, a photo impressionist, more concerned with the art of photography than with the technical ends of things. Verna assisted and learned, and also spent a lot of time retouching prints, a skill she picked up not in the studio, but from a book she borrowed from the library. After two years as an assistant, she decided to strike out on her own, applying the skills she learned from Irig. Verna became a professional photographer and retoucher. She placed ads in the telephone book and befriended a few of the local pictorialists. Falling in love with the airy, impressionistic style, by 1918, she was producing portraits where she played with lighting and composition, removing herself from the idea of a traditional portrait photographer. She also played with landscapes, photographing a pond from the water level with trees far off and reflected. We've seen similar work by Imogene Cunningham, a Seattle photographer about a decade before Verna. By this point in history, Cunningham was about to leave the Northwest for San Francisco. This was an era of exploration for Verna. She photographed flowers, bridges, her old high school, all through the gauzy haze of pictorialism. But still, there was something all her own. Pictorialism wasn't exactly played out by the late 19-teens, but it had grown. There was room for further experimentation, further play with composition and subjects. By 1919, she opened her own studio, but it quickly closed. While she was sure of her abilities, she just didn't know how to run a business. She moved back home to home and married a motorcycle mechanic. They traveled the West with Verna in the sidecar for two and a half months. Less than a year later, they divorced. After the divorce, she moved back to Tacoma to restart her life and photography career. She also met Paul Haffer, a socialist who had run for city comptroller, which we have no idea what that is, and was arrested and jailed for libeling the memory of George Washington. By describing him as a slave owner, they married and moved to a small enclave of artists that was essentially a satellite of the home colony. Before long, her first child, Jean, was born. To celebrate his birth, Verna bought a studio camera and began showing photos of him around to her friends. Her style was markedly different from the other baby photographers, and soon there was a demand. She set up a small studio and traded her photographs for goods and services. She built her reputation and portfolio through bartering. Over the next few years, the couple's small cottage expanded with a larger studio and darkroom. She moved on from baby portraits and began to re-explore her more artistic side. Very little of early 1920s work is available. By the late 20s, however, we can see that she was drawing influence from a variety of sources. Through her friends in the Seattle Camera Club, which she joined in 1928, she discovered Japanese woodblock printing. Many of the club's members were originally from Japan, and she found herself moved by their strange compositions, the flat depth. She was also interested in a technique called bromoil printing, where the printed photo is bleached away and various color inks are used to dye it. She also discovered Man Ray's work and was moved by his surrealism and starkness, an almost opposite to her pictorialist beginnings. At the Seattle Camera Club show in 1928, Verna displayed an unsettling portrait inspired by Japanese Yukio prints and kaidan, Japanese ghost stories. The print itself is freaky. We will definitely be showing you that. 
By the turn of the decade, she had grown to some renown. Her studio was a successful business. She had a short professional music career as a saxophonist, and she had been featured in the local newspaper and a few exhibitions. She had become, she had even become a successful and well-known woodblock printer. She had photographed a painter friend, Corwin Chase, in 1929. He was a strange man who painted his body with a batik dye and wore kimonos. Verna and her friend, Betty Sale, joined in on the body painting before heading off for a day of photographing Corwin. He often referred to himself in the third person as the chief. Verna had her first solo show on October 17, 1930, in the lounge of the Winthrop Hotel in Tacoma, a building that is still standing. There, she exhibited 27 of her woodblock prints and 48 photos spanning her decade-long career, including various baby portraits, portraits of political activists, some bromoil prints, and at least one of the Corwin Chase nudes. The nudes caused a bit of a stir, as did the block print entitled Phallic Worshippers, which featured her family standing naked before a large cross with a very penis-shaped glow emanating from it. Her work from this year took her to San Diego, where she fell in with photographer Wayne Albee. Using dancers as subjects was already a long tradition in photography. Here, she called upon her love of Japanese no dancing. The following year, 1931, Verna and her son, who was now 10, traveled all over the West, from Chicago to L.A., Route 66, spending quite a bit of time in New Mexico. By the time of her return to Tacoma, she was ready to exhibit over 70 new works. By this time, the public knew what to expect from her, but now her worldview had expanded. Her first solo show was very localized, but now her work seemed exotic. There were photos of a Chicago ghetto distorted portraits, pottery studies, and an incredibly freaky self-portrait of Verna behind the camera, which is on the cover of the book we both have. It's intense. We will show you that as well. She would continue the yearly tradition of solo shows in Tacoma through much of the 1930s. Her work was both heralded and criticized for being varied in subject matter and treatment. She couldn't neatly be placed in a single category of photographer or artist. She was creating sharp-focused, surrealist portraits at the same time she was shooting a haze of pictorialist photos. In 1934, she collaborated with Betty Sale for a book idea. Betty was a poet and wanted Verna to illustrate her book, Abundant Wild Oats. Inspired by Betty's words, Verna drew upon her many styles. The photo entitled, Almost I Understood, seems heavily influenced by Margareta Mather with the use of a kneeling nude and exaggerated shadow cast upon a backdrop. But there's also Lost Wife, a dark photo with a nude woman in a Jesus Christ pose with a crucifix of light surrounding her head. Down Isles of Tragic Twilight, on the other hand, features a crouching full-body male nude, probably the chief, shrunken to a small fraction of the otherwise very light and large print. She also used a few Lee Miller and Man Ray techniques, such as solarization and the repetition of lips. They promoted the book to publishers as a daring remarkable poem sequence revealing the erotic exultation of a woman of many loves by the poet who has breathed the redolence of strange romances into words of intimate rapture and sensate feeling. Nobody would touch the book, and it went unpublished. While many of the poems appear to have been lost forever, 
all of Verna's photographs remain, thanks to her insistence upon cataloging everything. By the mid-1930s, Verna was delving more into her documentary-style photography. She had done some a few years prior when photographing workers' strikes and the protests at the Sacco and Vanzetti trials, and the gardening division of the Unemployed Citizens League. She had been reading New Masses, a Marxist newspaper, which urged photographers to also shoot social realism in the work. She spent some time locally photographing Hooverville shanty towns, essentially homeless encampments that sprung up during the Great Depression. They are named after President Herbert Hoover, who is widely blamed for the Depression. In Seattle, one of the places she shot, over 600 men lived in just one of the eight Hoovervilles spread across the city. They would remain there for almost a decade. The early 30s had taken Verna and her son all over the West, and in all of the writing about her, very little is mentioned of Mr. Haffer. Paul mostly remained in Tacoma. He had become a labor organizer, and the workers needed him. Her traveling and his activism made for a bad marriage. They probably split sometime in 1932. In 1935, Verna was married to her third husband, Norman Bigelow Randall. She had met him through mutual friends. He was staying at the Tacoma Hotel when it caught fire and called her so she could photograph it. This act of selflessness in the face of becoming homeless must have endeared him enough to her. They immediately started dating and were soon married. Together, they collected bricks from the burned-out hotel and incorporated them into her studio and home. Norman soon became her subject. Through much of the late 30s and early 40s, she had used him for more experimental shots. One, from 1936, shows him slouched over, his shoes close to the lens, his torn pants leading to his body, which looks unconscious. Almost everything is in focus. Now, Norman was also a mining engineer and is often based out of Alaska. In 1939, they traveled north and she photographed miners and created darkened shots of Juno and brooding landscapes of sharp mountain ranges. She was there long enough to land a solo show in a Methodist church in Juno. The church referred to her as Mrs. Berna Hafner Randall. So close, yet so far. Verna, uh, note not Berna. Yeah, I I have that problem all the time. Oh, God, People call me Banya. (laughs) Banya? All the time. Banya. Banya. Yeah, with a B. I'm like... (sighs) (laughs) I do not get Barrick very often. Mm, I'm going to call you Barrick from now on. Thank God. Verna returned the following year, this time with Betty. They were apparently commissioned by Life magazine to photograph the ice breaking on the Nanana River, but they arrived too late and missed the thaw. She put ads in various Alaskan papers for exhibits as well as portrait commissions. They spent three months traveling to Sitka, where she photographed Russian Orthodox churches, totem poles, waterfalls, as well as the members of the Sitka tribe. They visited Cordova, Valdez, Seward, Matanuska, and went up to the Yukon on a flat-bottom stern wheeler. When they returned in July, they tried to pull a book together from their collected Alaska photos and poems, but couldn't find a publisher. By the early 1940s, Verna was serving as a juror for Tacoma's first photography salon. She also began shooting in color. Kodak introduced Kodachrome in 1935, and by 1941, Verna was advertising her use of it. A photo of her son shows a young Morrissey-looking fellow dressed in black with a yellow-green background. She doesn't seem to have been completely satisfied with Kodachrome's colors, as she applied additional pigmentation to the prints. Though the Seattle Camera Club had closed up shop over a decade before, 
Verna still maintained the friendships formed during those few short years. She and photographer Yuko Morinaga were peers, while Frank Kunishigi, who founded the Seattle Camera Club, was a mentor. But in 1942, the United States government opened concentration camps for American citizens of Japanese descent called war relocation centers. Yukio, Frank, and every other Japanese member of the Seattle Camera Club were all sent away, losing everything they had in the process. They were sent to Minidoka in Idaho, where they were imprisoned until 1945, following the end of World War II. Verna had been closest with Yukio, and upon his release, she bought him a small house in Tacoma. Verna, now a grandmother, continued her work through the late 40s. She shot mostly portraits, but began to dabble in photo montages. Though nothing too serious yet, that was still to come. She bought a small cabin on the Tacoma Narrows, and from there she photographed the small fishing community of Salmon Beach. She shot some color and a lot of black and white. Prior to her death, she donated the slides to a local historian who eventually put together a book for the Images of America series simply titled Tacoma Salmon Beach. For 15,000 years, people of the Chinook and Sahaptan tribes had gathered and fished at a place along the Columbia River they called Wyam, meaning the echo of falling water. It was the longest inhabited community in North America. The falls were not one large waterfall, but a series of falls, 3 to 15 feet high. Still, when combined, they were the sixth largest waterfall, by volume, in North America. Photographers had visited the falls for decades, photographing the villages and fishermen at work on their platforms built over the water. Verna photographed them in 1954. The most beloved of these photos shows the racing water and men with large nets. Three years after she shot that, the United States Army Corps of Engineers finished construction of a huge dam which flooded the falls and the communities that had existed there for literally 15 millennia. The waters engulfed the platforms and covered the falls and the village. The government paid the two nearest reservations a few million and called it a day. Is that dam still oh, God, standing? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it'll be there for... So everything is, like, could you dive and are things still there, you think? They did some... Uh, some studies recently and the falls are still intact wow yeah so they're still there that's incredible if the dam would go the falls would go back to the way they looked verna spent the rest of the decade immersing herself in the local photography scene she participated in a few different camera clubs and showed her work wherever she could in short she kept herself as busy as possible her husband had died in 1950 and she had mourned him but carried on now past the age of 60 Verna was changing. The last few years of the 50s brought to her a certain kind of end to her photography. She wasn't finished, of course, but her heart was moving in, in other directions. She had once made block prints and had even sketched out a few photo montages, but now she was thinking a little beyond the camera. She had likely experimented with photograms in the 30s when she experimented a bit with solarization. Photograms had been around before photography. William Fox Talbot made some in 1839 by placing random objects on a piece of paper coated in photographic chemicals and exposed to light. A similar effect can be made with a cyanotype. Photograms at the time were generally flat with little gradation in tones. Man Ray and Laszlo Maholinagi, two of Verna's photographic influences, dabbled in them as well, adding a bit of depth, but 
more so going for the surrealism. Man Ray called his rayographs, because of course he did. Verna knew their work and was determined to sort out a process by which she could essentially create a photograph out of a photogram. While Ray and Mahali Nagi added depth by the use of 3D objects, Verna felt there were still too many limitations in the medium itself. Simply placing a 3D object on the photo paper was great and all, but she saw that while these men had the surrealism market cornered, they lacked the imagination to take it any further. There is no subject limitation in creating photograms, Verna would later explain. Imagination is the source and stockpile of this particular type of artistry. Photograms afford one almost complete control of contrast, choice of content, form, and composition. The process offers a flexible outlet for creativity. Subject matter can be non-objective, fantasy, abstract, realistic, scenic, still life pattern, or storytelling. The possibilities are almost limitless. When some photographer tries to tell you that they're painting with light, show them to Verna Haffer's work of the 1960s. She wasn't merely painting with light. She was constructing worlds above her sheet of photo paper. So through the use of varying levels of glass stacked on top of each other above the paper, Verna would build layers of literally anything she wanted. If she wished for one of the layers to have a sharp contrast and have very little depth, she could press whatever she put between the two pieces of glass together tighter, and that would tighten things up. If she wanted a gradation and even some blur, she could control that as well by how close the glass above that layer rested. When all was perfect, she could expose it to light and make the photogram. She could even do multiple exposures with lighter or darker sources at varying angles. She used flashlights with different brightnesses and sizes. When she said that the possibilities were almost limitless, she was not joking. And so after the time many of her friends retired, Verna explored and perfected photograms. And finally, in 1969, she published Making Photograms, the creative process of painting with light, her only published book during her lifetime. We have talked about two of these photograms on the podcast before, though we can't remember exactly when. Or why. These were Tomorrow World and Aftermath. Both depict terrifying landscapes with Tomorrow World featuring the shadow skeleton of a rat and a bird, one crouched on a mushroom, the other flying through a scratched out sky. So that's interesting. Aftermath is a barren, war-torn land with dead, naked trees over smoky hills. A single rocking chair rests in the foreground. In another, California Horizons, she exposed a number of oil derricks trailing off into a smoggy distance, with a small flower trying to grow next to a pair, which looked more like monstrous dinosaurs than anything else. She perfected and continued her photogram work through the last 15 years of her life. In her 70s, she began photographing news events that she watched on her TV. She was thankfully weird till the end. Today, Verna Haffer is essentially forgotten. There's a single book of her work called A Turbulent Lens, The Photographic Art of Verna Haffer. And the digital archive available online is woefully incomplete and in some cases essentially useless. The Washington Historical Society holds her entire collection of plates and negatives. This is tens of thousands, but only a very few are available for viewing online. 
Before her death, she began a second volume of her photogram book, as well as a memoir. Neither were finished, but are in the collection of the Tacoma Public Library, which also has a few dozen of her photos and photograms. Verna Haffer showed us that we should not be limited by age or even camera. We shouldn't confine ourselves to a single medium or format. She even called into question the importance of having our own specific style. She began with photography from the age of 15, and 60 years later had evolved her work into something entirely new. She was constantly experimenting, constantly changing, and always allowing her art to express whatever worlds she could imagine. Author Lens is made possible by our generous and amazing Patreon subscribers. Through their small monthly donations, we are able to afford to keep this podcast up and running. Patreon helps us cover expenses for hosting, for audio equipment, and it helps us buy books for research and zines to review. To our Patreon subscribers, we thank you so much. We couldn't make this podcast without you. We have four new Patreon subscribers. Yay! Yes. Brian C. Joshua W. Nora S. And Chuck C. I'm assuming it's Chuck E. Cheese, right? It it is actually Chuck E. Cheese, yes. I knew it. Uh Uh-huh. He was real this whole time. He was. Not good pizza, but a very good rat. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, a talented rat. A very talented rat. Yeah, very good at skee-ball. I'm just kidding, Chuck. I'm so sorry. So a big, a big, huge goddamn welcome to everybody here. Thank you so much. When you subscribe to us on Patreon, you get monthly bonus episodes, full-length interviews. Including the one with, with Ed. Yes. yes. Some random photos and posts and much more extra nonsense. Me trying to bring more nonsense lately. You have been. I've been sharing entire roles uh, of my dev party, which is sort of nice. sort of like a contact sheet, but uh, not really. Anyway. I mean, kind of. Kind of. So we got three different levels of support, with the cheapest being less than a buck an episode. So head over to patreon.com slash lens for more information. Well, Vanya, that brings us to the end of another show. Yes. Yes, it's always it's true. It's always a little sad. Yay! But we'll be back next week. Clap, 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 clap. Until then, <laughs> what are you yes. doing this next week coming up? Ooh, okay. Well, I'm supposed to go see my mom. Wow. I think the road is still closed, so I think I'm going to see my mom. Are they going to Dumbo <laughs> drop you in? I hope not, oh. because then I'm stuck there if the roads are closed. That's true. Um, yeah, so- my mom is a lot. I love her. She's the best, but she is a lot. <laughs> she's incredibly in it. And she's, a, she's an incredibly intense woman. Yes, absolutely. So, um, yeah, it's, she kind of drains the energy out of me. She like is an en- energy vampire. She sucks all the life out of me. That's why she's has lived for so long. <laughs> Um, I love her. I'm very excited to see her, spend some time with her, and then maybe go like see some snow, I guess, because she lives in snow stuff. Snow stuff. Mm-hmm. Great. Great. Well, I hope they open up the road and you can see your mom. If you do, tell her I said hi. I definitely will. I know she, I sent you the book, right? Yeah. That she gave you? Yeah. So my mom had a book she really wanted to give to Eric. So she finally gave it to me and I sent it over to him. And it's uh, old 
trails, right? Yeah, old trails. Pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Your mom is awesome. Um, I think she likes me better than she likes you. And, you know. Uh, definitely likes you more than she likes me for sure. <laughs> but also, uh, she, you didn't have to deal with me as a teenager. So. <laughs> that is very true. What about you? What are you up to? I don't know. I don't know. I haven't shot a single frame, not one frame since Christmas. <gasps> no. And I'm okay with that. I'm so very okay with taking breaks. And I think they're they're important for us and to, to do. I think- it helps me out a lot. I'm looking forward to getting out. Uh, come March, some of the places that I want to photograph are are open officially, so I may I may go out to Eastern Washington this this next weekend. I may not. I do want to shoot a few cemeteries in the area just to kind of get my feet wet, without hopefully actually getting my feet wet. Yeah, with blood and guts. Yes. So we'll see how it all turns out. I do not know. But one thing I do know is that we will be back in one week for an odd episode, episode 79. It's so odd. We will have me and you, Vanya. We will also have Liz Potter and Amy Elizabeth. Yeah. So a reminder again about dev party questions. Submit your questions via email allthroughalens.podcast at gmail.com or via IG at allthroughalens.podcast. And thank you so much for listening to All Through a Lens. And a big thank you to Ed Pavez for talking to us. Thank you. You can follow his work and please do at Ed Pavez on Instagram. We're at allthroughalens.podcast on Instagram. By email, it's allthroughalens.podcast at gmail.com. And we're at all through a lens on Twitter. You can also check out our show notes and photographs on allthroughalens.com. Vanya is at surfmartian. And Eric is at conspiracy.of.cartographers. Both on Instagram. And speaking of Instagram, make sure to hashtag yourself, hashtag all through a lens podcast to be featured. Find us on Spotify or any podcast app. Subscribe and leave a review. Thank you all so very, very much for listening. We love you from the bottom of our hearts. Um, Vanya? Uh, yeah? Do you want to go out and shoot? Fuck yeah, I do. Let's go.